back to the History for Atheists podcast. I'm Tim O'Neill, and I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog, where I analyse some of the things many of my fellow atheists get wrong about history in general, and the history of religion in particular. If you're an atheist, or just someone interested in common misconceptions and myths about history, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome back to History for Atheists. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Wilson of Fairfield University. Joe is a lecturer in anthropology and specializes in anthropology and religious studies. And today he'll be discussing if the Apostle Paul really was as sexist as he's often portrayed. 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35 seems to say pretty clearly that women should be silent in the churches, and many conservative Christian churches take this very seriously, forbidding female preachers. It's also at least part of the basis for several Christian denominations restricting the priesthood purely to men. Not surprisingly, many atheists hold up this injunction by Paul as evidence that he was a misogynist and that Christianity was sexist and repressive. But was it Christianity that made Greco-Roman culture less egalitarian, or was it actually the other way around? Listen to my conversation with Joe Wilson to find out. So, uh, Joe Wilson, or Dr. Joseph A.P. Wilson, but I'm going to call you Joe. Um, welcome to History for Atheists. We've overcome some technical issues for viewers and listeners. We both had microphone and uh, speaker problems, so we're both sitting here with headphones on, looking like a pair of air, air traffic controllers or perhaps superstar DJs. Um, but thank you very much for coming on the show at, at slightly short notice. But you and I have uh, been interacting online for some years. You just said you've been stalking me uh, <laughs> online. I, I, I knew who you were before you knew who I was. <laughs> yeah, that became true. But um, we, 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 we have sort of had quite a few interactions. But quite recently, you, you alerted me to uh, a paper that, uh, that you've written on the very interesting subject of, uh, of the role of women in the early church and the perceptions of changing perceptions of various perceptions of over the centuries of Paul in relation to women. And, and what, this is an interesting topic for relevant to history for atheists because it seems to be one of those ones that always fascinate me where many atheists and many fundamentalist Christians are actually in agreement for completely different reasons. Um, and I've always liked those, you know, like the, the Christmas is pagan or Easter is pagan stuff, which Christians, some Christians embrace because they, they don't like uh, anything that isn't biblical. So, you know, Christmas isn't really very biblical. Um, and, and of course, atheists like because it, they can, they can laugh at the silly, those silly Christians who are celebrating what's actually a pagan festival or Saturnalia or Yule or whatever. Um, they're both wrong. But I'm interested in this one where, where they, they both say, well, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read from, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is something they want to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And, of course, there are a great many Christians who say this. Um, there's whole there's whole traditions within Christianity that base things like you know the fact that you can't have female priests in part on this, and of course there are many traditions in in, uh, in Christianity that that don't agree with this and and do have female preachers and female priests, but then of course you also have atheists who point to this and say this is a terrible uh, example of the terrible sexism. Of, of Christianity. It's inherent and baked in from the beginning. In, here it is, you know, like uh, um, I, I, I know the Bible. I'm an atheist because I read the Bible. I love that, 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 that line. Um, and here's my understanding of it because, you know, I used to be a fundamentalist Christian. So you've got this sort of overlap, which uh, I think you're very much aware of. But 
you in your paper argue uh, and draw draw my attention uh, drew my attention to uh, a very strong line of of uh, scholarship that basically says that's not true. This is not what Paul was actually saying. So I'm fascinated by this. Um, I've, I've read your paper, but uh, this is one of those topics where I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be instructed by you. And I will be interested in a couple of things. First of all, without getting too, as we were just discussing, without getting kind of too technical and nerdy about it, um, what the history of the, the scholarship on this is, because I think for many people, the idea that, that Paul didn't actually say that well, that's not actually what Paul meant, um, would be a bit of a surprise. So with that very rambling, and keep in mind, as I said before, it's about quarter past five in the morning for me, uh, that rather rambling introduction. No problem. What, 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 what the hell is Paul saying here if he's not saying women should shut up in church? So you asked about the history of the scholarship, and this has been um, debated in among a source critical, you know, uh, mostly Protestant source critics going back to the early 19th century have recognized that the historical Paul was a gender egalitarian. He is constant. He does things like list the name of his preaching partner, Prisca, Prisca or Priscilla before the name of her husband. He, he, he heaps praise on her in public. He goes to, you know, Paul in the, in the epistles and in the acts is portrayed as, you know, working in churches that are owned and operated by women, right? That they, these are house churches where they the proprietor is a woman. Okay. He calls women apostles, right? These are, um, or at least one prominent woman apostle, Junia and, and ancient Christians recognized that he was con- conferring ap- apostolic authority onto certain women who were Christians before he was, and this is a consistent enough theme in his authentic epistles, the ones that scholars regard as unassailably Pauline and not forgeries, that, that this means that this particular passage in 1 Corinthians is incongruous. It doesn't conform to the Paul that we see elsewhere in the same epistle. In, okay. in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, women prophesying in church must cover their head. And by the way, there's some question about whether he was even joking about that. There was, there's, there's, some, there's some ancient authorities that recognize that Paul is very sarcastic. And he's, he, often is, he often rhetorically caricatures his opponents. He often mocks in subtle and sophisticated ways. And so it's hard sometimes to say when he is taking the piss, if you, you know what I mean? And so, so I don't want to get, and a lot of those are very gray areas where there are, there's a lot of room for error and this, and there's, and it's partially because there's so much ambiguity in the interpretation of the genuine epistles that it results in the later forgeries trying to iron things out. So pseudo Pauline epistles, including the canonical forgeries, they tend to be the ones that are trying to resolve these questions unambiguously. But so why is this passage so incongruous? Because in the same, very same epistle, Paul's other statements take the fact that women can speak in church for granted. So okay. then, then all of a sudden this, there's this unequivocal, very, it's the most, it's the most um, decisive curtailment of women's leadership, public leadership authority anywhere in the New Testament. And it cites the law, which it presumably would be the Hebrew law. Yep. But there's nothing in the Hebrew law that says that. There's no, place in the enti- there's no place in the entire Hebrew Bible that says women can't speak in synagogues. And we have ancient s- inscriptions that show that women did speak in synagogues. Yeah, and I was just, I was just women were allowed that. to speak in synagogues. So the notion that, that the law forbids women from speaking in church is incredibly weird. And then you notice that the in the canonical verse order, the and by oh here's the other thing: this epistle was the most popular early Christian text. First Corinthians was probably the most heavily cited source in all of early Christian literature. It's almost ubiquitously known for the first couple of centuries of the tradition, and nobody cites this verse. Nobody cites it until around the year 200 when Tertullian cites it for the first time. But we know it was in the earliest manuscripts. 
there's no support for an for um for it being absent in any manuscript lineage. So how is it possible that this statement was in the first century text stream, right? Yeah. But but it was completely ignored until the time of Tertullian of Carthage, who cited it in his, in a couple of different contexts. He cited it in attacking um, the pseudo-Pauline materials he didn't like, or the, the Acts of Paul, which Tertullian rejected, and he cited... Um, this passage, among others, and he he cited um, he cited this this particular passage for several different reasons at several different times. Mainly when he was battling the her- with with the heretic Marcion, he was like attacking Marcion's um, scriptural canon and used trying to use use Marcion's own scriptures against him. And this is yeah. one of the things. And so we know that Marcion used it too, right? Marcion's version of First Corinthians had this really problematic passage in it that are we are we sure about that it's cited it's okay. his critics cite him as yeah. saying that and use it against him they say see how can you let your women your your holy sisters oh, how can you let your holy okay. sisters talk in church when you're very your own apostolicon your own bible that you use and claim yeah. is you know the what and it's a part you didn't edit out tertullian is flabbergasted that because he thinks that Marcion likes to snip snip out anything he doesn't like. He's like, why didn't Marcion lift it in, lift, yeah. you know, chop this part out? Because it says it tells him that his, the women aren't allowed to to lead. So for for, for, for listeners who, who who might not be familiar with with what we're talking about with Marcion, Marcion and and the the Apostolon, we don't have that work. So right. we we can only reconstruct it from what others say about it, which is why when I ask, are we sure but about it, that? But it was people so often talk heavily, about what, so heavily people talk about what, what Marcion said, and right. we, we have to be a little cautious. But uh, So the reason I ask the question is so you could elaborate on that. But all the, re- that clear. all the reconstructions of Marcion, which are based on looking at what people quoted from it, yep. all the, 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 the conservative reconstructions, the liberal reconstructions, the ones that are you know, because people can be more or less generous in how they apply paraphrases, yep. right? Like when you see ancient paraphrases of Marcion, people make inferences about paraphrases and say that, therefore, this whole whole section was present. Other more conservative scholars might say only the direct quotations are available for the paraphrase. But all reconstructions of Marcion include this passage. So there's okay. there, nobody doubts that Marcion. So how is it that you can have this passage and maintain an egalitarian view of women's leadership? Okay. And the answer is staring us right in the face. And since the 19th century, in Anglophone um, theology and critical scholarship, there has been a about five or six different scholars and theologians going back to the middle, the middle of the 19th century have stumbled across the plain um, fact that Paul refutes this passage in canonical verse order in the very next verse, which is verse 36. So after it says, you know, women need to sit down and shut up, Paul immediately says, what? Did the word of God originate with you or did you alone using the masculine plural pronoun, uh-huh. did you alone receive it? So verse 30, uh, okay. so yeah. the, the quotation refutation hypothesis, which is what I defend in my paper, is not something that one scholar came up with. It's something that about five different independent scholars, each reading um, either in the original Greek or reading in, a, in certain English translations that facilitate this reading, they noticed that Paul actually smacks this idea down in the very next verse. So he often quotes from the letter he's received and responds. And there are a number of recognized quotation refutation structures where he says, you know, um, some say I'm of Paul, some say I am of Apollos, you know, those those kind of, there's a lot of short quotations that he responds to and and rejects or critiques. That's a kind of common device. But what's kind of unprecedented about this one is it's a very long quotation if the QR 
the QR proponents are correct. And I believe they are. Yeah. Um, and how, um, and so, but it, a, a lot depends on how you translate it into English. Many, so there's a, uh, an eta, which is a disjunctive particle of separation and it has, it can have a negative valence. It can be, it can be like, um, skeptical in its tone. It's sort of like, but it, or it can be pronounced as a neutral con, uh, translated as a neutral conjunction. So if you see it translated as a what with a question mark or what with a an, exclama- an exclamation point, like in most English Bibles before 1950, which is when m- many of these QR readings were first, you know, emerged in the literature, those um, particular translations and a good, tr- you know, uh, someone with a good knowledge of the ancient Greek original would notice that there is a change in gender. Right between the women who are referred to in the in thirty four and thirty five on the one hand, and the men in the congregation who are referred to in thirty six. Yeah, but because, because so. English has no gender in the plural pronoun, and because many post nineteen fifty translations drop or translate that as an or as opposed to a what. Right. So it, yep. it can you can read it as referring to women or men, which changes the entire it's an ambiguous passage, depending on how you inflect it. So I'm just looking at the Greek and and uh, in and, and also got the, the English translation, the NRSV. The NRSV trans- has changed it. Has changed yeah, say, like they, most of the other most yeah. modern I don't know of any post nineteen fifty translations that keep that what. But most it's, it's, all pre nineteen fifty English translations that I'm aware of have the the epithet as opposed to the conjunction between thirty five and thirty six. So the NRSV has got it as a conjunction is or or are you the only right. ones? And right. whereas in the in the Greek, it's it's the uh, how do you pronounce it? It's an eta, which is a disjunctive. Yeah. So when they form brackets, it can yeah. be or 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 it can be what or the first yep. in a two. So, in other words, you, you, they're they're like they separate ideas, like any conjunction was, but they can also do so negatively and skeptically. Right, it just so depends sort of on saying, the context. So, he's sort of saying WTF. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of like <laughs> that. And and here's the thing. So, here, but here, let's move on. What happened yeah. at the time of Tertullian? Right around when Tert- so Tertullian of Carthage is the first like well-known Latin theologian. He's, the, he's considered to be the father of Western Christianity in some ways, like the original, he's the written, original Latinizing translator. So he is yeah. involved in the production of old Latin editions of New Testament documents. He is um, working with Western Greek manuscripts that are partic- have a, they're part of the Western text type manuscript tradition. So yeah. they're aligned with other documents in the Latin West, other languages that come out of this tradition are the Syriac. So most early Syriac texts are what we call Western type. So Tertullian is working very near the inception of the Western text type manuscript tradition. And that's the one where they have displaced these passages to put them be after verse 40. So they're not in canonical. So how is he so skeptical of Marcion? His version does not have them prior to the, rhetor- the the twofold negative rhetorical query of verse 36. His version has moved the passage to a sheltered position at the end of the chapter, where, so where I, it stands alone as a, as a statement and with no answer. Gotcha. I was going to ask, what's the significance of the move? Because as, as we began talking this morning before we began recording, I was saying, you know, after reading your paper, I then went and had a look at the verse again, and I saw a footnote that I'd never noticed before saying some ancient authorities put 1434 to 35 after 1440. And my first thought was, okay, that indicates something is, 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 is off 
about these verses. Now, obviously, there is the other, the alternative school of thought, which is that the whole thing is an interpolation, which you, in your paper, and maybe we won't go down that path, no. but you you argue is not uh, is not um, uh, as persuasive as, so I can, as, the, as the question. I, I can response. defend that really briefly, and that's okay. that yeah. the, the, the interpolation argument argument is strong on the surface. So a marginal yeah. note that then gets put in in two put different in. places. Yep which is how those kinds of interpolations work. And so while that makes sense at first, as my former mentor um, and one of the proponents of the QR hypothesis, David Odell Scott wrote in his yep. paper in 2000, that's an inept place for an interpolator to interpolate. Why okay. would you interpolate if you really believe this and it was important and you wanted to make it seem like Paul said it? Why would you put it right before Paul said, what? Did the word of God originate with you or did you alone receive it? Oh, here's the other thing. There is a law that is that tells women that they cannot speak in in the assemblies. That law is Greco-Roman going Ah. back to the time of Aristotle. The Corinthian congregation was Gentile. These were majority Gentile. There were some elite Jewish Christians among them, for sure, like Priscilla and like some of the women that associated with Paul. But these were not these were not Jews. These were Hellenistic people. And so when they when he quotes them citing the law as the reason women aren't allowed to speak and he says, what did the word of God originate with you? You can see he's re- regard re- it, it. It forms a skeptical rebuttal to claims that the congregation has legal standing to oppose women, and, and that's the other thing. Why does like Paul is not usually associated with citing Old Testament law, right, as the basis for why Christians aren't allowed to do something? <laughs> it's not really his thing, right? It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. Yeah, it's quite the opposite of his thing. How is it that early Christians ignored this? Because it was a settled, it would have been a settled controversy. It would have been like a brief aside, and it wasn't really what the epistle was even about. But then the later editors who were concerned with Hellenistic gender morality, right, with with making Christians conform to what are considered normal male-female hierarchies, they would want to, because there's no punctuation in Greek, yeah. There's there's ways to read. You could read it in either way, even in the original Greek. By moving it, you just remove the ambiguity. You make it impossible <laughs> to read it in the QR. You can, the quotation refutation reading is eliminated. <laughs> the other thing that happens is First Timothy comes along, and First Timothy basically rewrites a lot of what's in Corinthians. First Timothy is not just it's not just echoing and reinforcing Paul first Timothy the reason first Timothy exists is to clarify and to in some sense self-correct is in the voice of Paul saying what I really meant was <laughs> this and so the parallel there's all kinds of parallelisms between first Corinthians and first Timothy and the people who the majority of critical scholars who believe first Timothy is a forgery, they would see those parallelisms as forgers tells, right? Like a person trying to paint a Rembrandt and they're copying every stroke in a particular Rembrandt, but they're saying it really should be this color instead of, you know, they're making their own personal um, tweaks. Why is first Timothy necessary? It's, it's necessary because there's all kinds of confusion surrounding Paul. And so does that give us an idea of the, therefore of the date of First Timothy? I must say I've, ne- I've never paid any attention because I, I read this stuff so, from the point of view of, of trying to understand history, and and I'm much more interested in the history of what Paul tells us about the, the first century, the first decades of Christianity. Therefore, that, that, those apocry- that, those pseudepigraphical works are of, of very little, little interest to me. So, what is what is the accepted generally accepted date of of First Timothy? As with all of these things, there's a lot of disagreement, uh, yeah, yeah, but I think that um, I I personally stand with what I think was a very um, strong position of held by many critical scholars that First Timothy is rather late. Okay. Um, it's it's people will say, oh, but the apostolic 
fathers alluded to it in their letters. They have thematic resemblances. Sure they did, because they're also really late. <laughs> they're not they're not writing in, in the year eighty. And and this, <laughs> this and this is why I was asking the question, because if if, right. if, if we're if it's not really until Tertullian that we're starting well, to we're starting not, to see this. not that late not that right. late first timothy has right. already been around but people had been arguing about it at the time right. of tertullian is when at the time of tertullian is when people finally started to generally accept Got it. the pastoral okay. epistles as canonical when they were written they were viewed with skepticism when they were written people didn't believe uniformly that they were real upon. There's several lines of evidence to show that first Timothy was in fact highly disputed for quite some time. By the time of Tertullian, it wasn't anymore. By the time of Tertullian, it was set. It was people recognized first Timothy as Paul, but okay. in the second century, here's, do you want to know what the basics are about why first Timothy is fake? Uh, very quickly, because yeah, so there's a couple, it, it, things, it refers, a couple things I want to get back to. But oh, yeah, so I'll let you I, I run off on tangents. I apologize. Yeah. But it refers to uh, church offices that didn't exist. It yeah. uh, cites Luke as scripture. It, Luke wasn't written when Paul was alive, yet it cites Luke as scripture. So it must have been written after, not only after Luke was written, but after Luke was widely circulated and read. Yeah, which <laughs> right. is quite, which is quite like. Right. So, and yeah. it appears to be anti-Marcionite. It appears okay. to have a very strong, um, because Marcion didn't have the pastoral epistles in his canon. First yeah. Timothy is the most clearly articulated against early to mid second century heresies. Right. So the context of the controversies of the 120s, the 130s, the 140s, I don't I don't know when it was written, but I so don't I know it's not first century. It's, it's firmly second. It's century. firmly okay. second century. I okay. could say anywhere from the middle of the first half of the second century to somewhat later. Even later. But but a couple of things that I want to get back to then. OK, so I'm now interested in. In in what Paul's attitudes to women were, number one. Number two, how that fits into Paul's Jewish context, because we have to remember that Paul is very much a devout Jew, contrary to what a lot of people kind of think of him. Uh, and, yeah. and thirdly, who's he arguing against? It sounds like he's arguing against people who have a much more kind of Greek conception of women's place, which wasn't exactly... Uh, shall we say egalitarian? No. So, could you, could you maybe talk about if if Paul isn't this terrible sexist pig necessarily? What do you think his attitude to women was, and was that a kind of a radical departure from the Judaism of the Second Temple period, in which he was he was uh, writing in the fifties? So, I think that is a complicated question that's hard to answer because of the limited scope of our access to Paul. Okay. Paul's, you know, corpus is not that large and the historical accounts of Paul's life are quite biased as you know, they're not, but we know that early. So let's not just talk about the historical Paul here. Let's talk about what early Christians thought of Paul. Okay. Because so the author of the acts of the apostles portrays Paul as having a very good relationship with women. Some of the pseudo Pauline forgeries portray Paul as going to churches run by women. Like Colossians has a has a woman running a church in Laodicea, right? This is this is so in other words, it's not just it, it's it's only particular late forgeries that turn Paul into a caricatured misogynist. Right. It's only particularly some pseudo Pauline work is perfectly content to say that Paul supported women in leadership positions. Second Timothy. I don't believe second Timothy and first Timothy have the same author. Most people do. Most people okay. think the pastor, the pastor, the pastoral epistles is written by this guy. called single, the pastor. Single, Second yeah. Timothy and first Timothy don't agree with each other. They're okay. not in the same genre. One is a farewell discourse and the other one is like a manual of canon law. They don't have they don't have the same rhetorical purpose. They don't have the same audience. They only have the same rhetorical frame. They're both portrayed as being letters to this guy named this guy. Timothy. Uh, uh. And when you realize that, wow, first Timothy is really anti-woman. It's anti it's pro-marriage. It's pro-childbirth. It's pro-alcohol. It's all these things the historical Paul wasn't. <laughs> 
Second Timothy is probably not real Paul either, but it's a much better forgery, right? Second Timothy is written by somebody who is much has a much broader fluency in the Pauline literature. First Timothy was written with maybe a copy of Second Timothy and First Corinthians and maybe Titus. Like this person did not know Paul as a whole. They were responding to First Timothy is responding to one or two of Paul's works right it's wow. it's a bad forgery which is why it wasn't it was people were skeptical of it whereas these other ones were, were portray paul you know saying greetings and salutations to this woman or that woman women are like constantly being praised uh, in paul so is he is he singling them out and saying that they're like they're they should be leaders he isn't necessarily doing that but he's saying that in Galatians, of course, he says, male and female are one in Christ. That's sort of the theme. He sees Christ as be as a, as annihilating gender hierarchies. That's okay. that's that's a really fundamental aspect of his of his teaching. So therefore, this was a very popular religion among women and slaves for 300 years. It was not men that were converting to this religion. It was the early Christianity was women dominated. And, and this and from material culture. We know this because when we have documents of seizures, when the church was persecuted by, by Rome in the, in the, um, in the third century that we have documentation of the number of garments that, because they had like, you know, wardrobes that were confiscated and they have 87 women's tunics and 25 men's tunics, right? This is not, (laughs) there's no, there's no way to to get around it. That this was a originally, a very accommodating movement towards people who had been marginalized. And that, that's a really, that's a really interesting point because again, before we started recording, I was talking about why I found your paper interesting and why I wanted to have this conversation because people often ask me questions about you know, the, the early church. Sometimes I have read extensively on it and other times I haven't. And on this particular uh, topic, a lot of the stuff I've read that's making those sorts of points has always struck me as being written by highly progressive people, and I'm saying this is an old progressive lefty myself, but who it always kind of smacked a little bit of us projecting what we would like to believe back onto, onto the first and second centuries. But it's sounding from what you're saying that that, that isn't, the case. I, I, I'm not saying that's what I thought. I'm just saying I was always a little bit cautious so, of that stuff. And you asked another question and I didn't answer it. And so let me answer, try to answer that. Yeah. Paul and Judaism. I am also yeah. of the sort of Paul within Judaism school. I'm very sympathetic to the the readings that say that a lot of the theological discrepancies that we associate with Pauline theology are introduced by the early canonical forgeries not not the late one that i was talking about but like there's so there's seven undisputed epistles and of the and then there's one that was recognized as not paul in antiquity that's hebrews it doesn't even claim to be by paul but it's in the style of paul and then there's six that are commonly regarded as as attributed to him fraudulently um and some of those are more the deuteropauline materials is what we're we're talking about with the pastoral epistles being the flagrant ones that almost everyone agrees right other than people who are traditionalists arguing from a position of traditionalist authorship claims right but if you're if you're not if you're not someone who is opposed to the idea of canonical forgeries it's really hard to say the pastoral epistles are genuine but the other three um you know uh, colossians and ephesians and second thessalonians those are on the fence there and it's though it's in those epistles that you get the sort of rise of a more sort of distinctive Christology that is incompatible with the weird Hellenistic Judaism that Paul really was a part of. So like it's in the canonical epistles that there's more, again, there's ambiguity in the way you translate. Like, is he saying faith in Christ or is he saying the faithfulness of Christ, the way the faithfulness of Abraham protects the, the Jews, the faithfulness of Christ protects the, Gentiles. So that was read differently by Christ by Christians, and it, and later forgeries reflected the Christian understanding. Whereas Paul, as a Jew, likely meant it in a more 
Jewish way, right? It, it, the historical Paul. So, yeah. so getting back to the women thing, yes, there is a cosmopolitan strand of Hellenistic Judaism that is what we might consider to be more gender egalitarian. I think Paul is a member of that strand. People, if I want to say criticize people in my own camp, the egalitarian Paulists, historically they have tended to caricature traditionalist Judaizing, right? Like the Judaism as being the old gender patriarchalist with Paul's progressive Christianity, right? He's coming <laughs> along as like this re reforming that fuddy duddy that, and that's not true. Really. That's an anachronistic way. It's projecting our own view of Paul, which is partially based on Paul and partially based on pseudo Paul or the fake Paul that comes to dominate our conception yeah. of Paul. Really. Um, there was no clear cut difference between Jewish and Christian thinking on this topic at the time, because he was writing before Christianity as such existed. He was writing. He wasn't a Christian. And this is, he wasn't a Christian. I, mean, I don't know if you've read much of, of Paula Fredrickson's yes. recent stuff. Yes. But, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it. And, and, and Pamela Eisenbaum is another yeah. one who wrote a good book on this topic. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, I think it was last year, or might have been the year before. I read Paula Fredrickson's most recent book on Paul, and and it just completely changed the way. I mean, I was aware of all this stuff, but it completely changed the way I read those those Pauline epistles. He he is he's wholly Jewish, and this is why I now get very grumpy, as as is my want, um, with people who who sort of talk about all oh, of. Paul was the real founder of, of Christianity because he he took this Jewish faith and he turned it into something else. No, he didn't. He 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 took a Jewish sect, maybe in a different direction, but he 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 was still very much a Jew doing Jewish things. Even yeah. that stuff about Gentiles being saved by the Messiah and, right. and Jesus' redemption, redemptive death, saving the the the, the, the nations—that was all very deep in the Jewish tradition as well. And, and, a, and a, a veritable Jewish form of Christianity opposed to Pauline Christianity did emerge in the aftermath of Paul. But that was a schism that came later. That was a result of some Jewish Christians not liking the what, what the Gentile Christians were doing and yeah. scapegoating Paul as the, you know what I mean? So it's, in other words, we're, again, we're judging the, pa the, 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 the period before the division between the two sort of major branches in second century Christianity, the, the radical Paulinists, Gentile only people, folks like Marcion. Marcion was himself, I think, according to Marcus Vincent, at least, Marcion was himself a Jew, right? I don't know much about the historical Marcion as a person, yeah. but he was a Jew who rejected the Jewish God, right? And he was... And, and saw Christ as a different God than, than the one that his ancestors worshipped. So there was clearly a major a major schism in the Christian movement that occurred in the early second century that resulted in complete and total fragmentation of these, these previously allied groups yeah. so that, you know, but it's, it's important that we not project the conflicts between, you know, uh, so-called Judaizing factions and Pauline factions in the, in the second century and not, imagine that they're going on before the temple was destroyed. I mean, Paul's yeah. writing when the temple is still doing it, you know, it's, he's, he's the only pre 70 Christian author we have. The, uh, just while he was talking about that, I was sort of thinking about what you were, you were just sort of saying earlier on about um, the appeal that, that uh, the Christian movement had in the early centuries to women. And, and that very famous passage about in Christ, there is no male or female. You know, there's no slave or free, um, which is I've, I've interviewed Tom Tom Holland about his book Dominion, where he was talking about how that was quite a radical idea uh, for the for the time. Yeah. Um, but but you're sort of saying that there is a a more egalitarian, cosmopolitan, I think was the word you used, strain of Judaism, and really Paul is rather than being this evil sexist that that uh, he's been characterised as in popular culture, particularly among many of, of my fellow atheists, he, he was actually m much more of that, of that uh, rather more egalitarian and cosmopolitan strain in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Yes, indeed. And as, and the, remember he's writing in the period before rabbinical Judaism rises up. 
Yeah. And rabbinical Judaism is um, also coming out of the same milieu as Christianity, right? It's a, it's True. not, it's it's drawing from the same cultural trends. And what do we see in rabbinical Judaism? We see, do see some parallels to this passage in, so in the Talmud, for example, and in the various uh, the the various Jewish commentaries and literatures that come after the destruction of the the temple. Um, we see some lip service to women's subordination. We see women being uh, placed into this hierarchy in a way that's kind of analogous to Paul, Paul, the, the caricature of Paul. That's because they're also trying to conform to, to Roman customs and expectations. Like when Philo of Alexandria writes his, alle- his allegory of the book of Genesis, and he talks about wifely duty to submit to her husband, He's saying, look, the book of Genesis matches Aristotle. He's, 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 he's trying to get the Jewish scripture to conform to a good. It's, it's Hellenic, Hellenic, yeah. Hellenic paradigm. Because I was going to ask that. I was going to say, okay, so where, where did this more egalitarian, more, more cosmopolitan strand come from? Because it seems to be going against the way in which Hellenic culture, Hellenic culture was, was, is, is, is pretty patriarchal. Christianity was in the first, before, when it was an outlaw religion, when it was being persecuted systematically, it was fairly countercultural, not just in terms of women's authority, but in terms of general sort of matters. There were like many ways that it was opposed to normative Hellenistic social norms. It was flagrant. It was flaunting it, right? It was like, um, I mean, you can think of other, uh, just the the kinds of asceticism that Paul preaches in um, 1 Corinthians 7, which form the basis of the early sort of radical ascetic strains of Christianity. Uh, Alcohol avoidance, you know, these kinds of practices were not normal for Greeks and Romans at the time. And so people who were attracted to this were people who were in some ways rejecting everything else about the society they lived in. And as they were the dregs of, they were the people who were being shit on, pardon my French, I I apologize. Um, If they were the people who were out of the um, power structure, then why wouldn't they, why would, you know, what, what incentive did they have to, to conform? And it was a secret, you know, a secret thing where nobody was o- openly, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now and I but, need to stop. No, it's a good point. We, we, we see this in the anti-Christian polemic that we get reflected in the responses. Yes. You know, so in, in, in uh, Celsus. Yes, we, indeed. That's a good example of this. He, he mocks he's, the Christians for not just for letting women lead, yeah. But for all the other things that they do, that is contrary to what he sees weird. as, yeah, yeah, weird. I mean, uh, they're pacifists. They're, as you say, they're aesthetics. Um, they're, they're, it, everything, everything is kind of backwards and upside down. And particularly in in the third century, which uh, which was a a period of turmoil politically in the Roman Empire, where people were trying to, and you see it in Aurelian, and you definitely see it in Diocletian, who, of course was the guy who did most of the persecuting. Right. Um, what they're doing is they're sort of saying, well, everything's gone completely haywire. We need to get back to, you know, proper good values, the way things used to be, and we need to have people sacrificing to the gods. And these weirdos over here who many of them don't aren't interested in joining the army, um, a, lot of them, a lot of them are, are practising these strange ascetic beliefs, We've got to pull these people into line, and if they if they don't conform, then we need to kill some of them, a lot of them, enough of yeah. them. You know, <laughs> make, make an example, <laughs> indeed. And so, let me talk a little bit about um, material culture and sure. and the uh, um, physical evidence for women's leadership in the early church. Uh, I'll give a shout out to uh, a, a, a peer, a colleague uh, who is doing a lot of stuff with art history now, Ali Katuz. K-A-T-E-U-Z-S, I think. But she has done, I, I so pardon my, if I spelled her name wrong, but Ali Katuz is doing some really good work with early liturgical iconography and early Christian art, showing that the way women's roles change over time. And um, most of the liturgical manuals we have are forgeries, right? So in the in the late antique and early medieval period, 
people wrote manuals of how church is to be done. How how do we conduct the the mass? Um, those manuals were written, but they were written as though they were written by ancient apostles like in the distant past. But in fact, they were saying we need to make this thing. We need to clean the clear this stuff up. We need to make yeah. it make it. So they were they were projecting a kind of male supremacism onto remote antiquity, but they were doing it in the medieval period. When you look at the archaeological evidence for early Christianity, you see that women were pretty open in leadership positions. We're finding in Byzantine excavations recently, we're finding prominent female graves in church cemeteries where Eucharistic paraphernalia is found in close association with women's human remains. We're finding inscriptional evidence where things like the titles of for, for church leadership are applied to women. We're finding this is not, and it's not an isolated incident. It's rather widespread. It's rather uniform. It's cuts across different sects of Christianity. It's not just the Marcionites. It's the, it's the so-called proto-Orthodox as well, that where you see women in who are, who are, and, the, and there are altarpieces. There was an altarpiece found in the uh, St. Peter's Basilica that was buried. Probably it was only because it was buried underground that it survived, but it has pictures of women in vestments, uh, <laughs> vestments standing over altars. Right. It's like, and, and, and Ali points out that this is actually reflecting a Jewish custom where you have the men on the men's side and the women on the women's side. So later Christians revised it and they eliminated the sort of parallel to synagogue practices. But if you have women on the women's side, who's going to administer sacraments? Are you going to have men go over to the women's side of the building where the women sit and say, here's your sacraments? No, you're going to have clergy that are responsible for both. And so fact, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that, though. I mean, you, you just mentioned about some of the the office, the names of offices. So we, we, we do know that there were deaconesses. Right. Well and as, those, as are, well those are explicitly mentioned in First Timothy. Yeah. And it's funny that First Timothy is the one that he establishes, in some sense, the, the one official form of female clergy, even though he says women are not allowed to teach men. Right. In a, in a passage that is deliberately parallel to our our first Corinthians passage. That's, that's the mechanically, it's a mechanical imitation of that section of first, first Corinthians because it uses unprecedented language. I mean, the only place that that particular verb that means permit occurs in any writing attributed to Paul is in first Timothy two 15 or so, right? Somewhere around there. And first Corinthians 14, 33, 34, right? Those are the same or 34, 35, pardon me. Those are the same, they're so linguistically similar, but it's in the, it's in that epistle where he says women can't teach men, but he also says women can teach women. And it's later church, later church uh, authorities said that there, that women clergy traveled with men clergy and they ministered to the houses that they visited in separate groups. So there was still a kind of a male hierarchy, but it didn't mean that women weren't leaders. It just meant that they were, leaders of women sure. in within the, in that the, branch. So we're still kind of in the second century where we, where we definitely do have deaconesses. There were other, there were other uh, 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 offices within, uh, within the, 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 the what, what we can now call the church. We're no longer talking about a Jewish sect. So there were things like presbyters, there were the electors, there were, there were exorcists, there were all these, uh, we don't, don't hear about that many of these these days. Do we have examples of women fulfilling those offices? Well, here's so now there's two different stories. It depends on who you ask. We we know that there's physical evidence of women with the name like there's a famous um, I forget which um, church it is in, but it's it, I learned of this through Ali's meticulous scholarship where there's a mosaic that has Bishop Theodora. <laughs> Oh, and she's, and she's, still, yeah. she's still alive when she's when it's made because she has a square halo, square, which indicates, square halo. indicates, yep. indicates still, that yep. the person was still alive. Yep. Um, and Bishop Theodora is eventually given a sex change. Oh, this happens to a lot of a lot of women leaders get turned into men by scribes. And we I can talk about that. If we have more time, we can talk about how 
how you change women into men for posterity. Um, this happens a lot. But v Bishop Theodora, she gets her, she gets the feminine ending lopped off of the mosaic. They replace it with tiles that don't show the feminine ending. So her name is now Theodo, and she's evidently a very effeminate gentleman. But um, Theod and by the way, Theodo is not a real name. Well, but at, least, at least it has a masculine masculine ending. This also happens. They often invent new masculine names yeah. for people who don't actually have masculine names because now at least it sounds masculine. I was so just going to say that, that, that I've never heard of the name Theodo. But, but Theodo yeah. is, the, is the revised name of Bishop Theodora. <laughs> and it's not the only thing. So um, in the earliest mosaics, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, and Mary – are often portrayed in very, very high-ranking garb. They're portrayed wearing clothes reserved for popes, yep. right? So like Mary, and she'll stand there at the altar with her hands out in a very liturgical gesture. In other words, Mary and Elizabeth are both portrayed as as high-ranking clergy. What, what, using what, date the, are we, what date are we up to by now, though? Are we, are we now in the, the third century? I think it might even be later. See, that's the thing. This yeah. is something. This wasn't an instant process. I sure. can't. I, I won't. I won't shoot dates at you off the top of my head because I don't want to make mistakes. Okay. But this wasn't something where someone made a decision and it, everything changed. This was a long, gradual. very long, gradual deterioration and erosion of what had been the normal situation in late antiquity it wasn't until the medieval period and even in the medieval period it wasn't as bad as it was after the reformation in some ways even in the medieval period you had women lecturing in cathedrals you had very you had prominent women intellectuals with with scholarly positions in research you know doing doing literature literary studies yeah. Right. The, the, I forget. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but you, oh, you can look into it. The medieval period was not a period when women women were not barefooted in the and in the kitchen until people rediscovered Aristotle in the Renaissance. That was when they that's when they realized that women were had been given too much freedom and they needed to to go back to the, the good old days. Certainly, certainly in the in the early medieval period we, we have you know the, the, the female saints were considered equal to the to the male saints. You had people like Hildegard of Bingen, yet Hild in uh, in in the in the Anglo Saxon context. Um, but yeah, once they it's really probably the twelfth century that they, so the, the, the misogynist the, uh, element, good old Greeks, the misogynist the, element from Aristotle it starts to permeate. The official the official uh, party line explanation for why these women bishops existed is that they were the wives of male of bishops yes. and they inherited their titles as an honorific, not as a symbolic title, like calling, you know, the wife of a professor, professora, even though she doesn't have a PhD, I guess. I don't know. But you see what I'm saying? It's that, it's that, it's that, that kind of argument has very little substance behind it, but it's just a rescuing device. It's a way of explaining the physical evidence without acknowledging that there's a major discrepancy here between so, what what is maintained now and what was actually done then so if we got female bishops we have to have female priests in the same period yeah i believe so too and and again i i, I don't have this the data comprehensively at my thing but but some early inscriptional evidence from very early churches at dara europas in in um you know uh the sort of border eastern borderlands of 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 what was emerging christendom right i guess you'd have you have a number of early inscriptional evidences for women in various leadership positions i don't have a comprehensive knowledge of this but every time i look into it i find more right and so i'm not i'm not claiming expertise in that particular uh okay. subset of the data but i encourage interested people to go digging because you know, these are not isolated occurrences. These are widespread. They, they are found in different regions. But one thing that my paper is making clear is that the rise of the male supremacists in some ways can be traced through the Western Latin literature after Tertullian. That's where you see a concerted revisionist effort. You see lots of individual corruptions across the Western text type which are sub systematically subverting women's authority. So like, how do you do this? You change the order of names in a list of names so that women become 
less prominent by moving men first in the sentence. You re- instead of saying women apostles, you say the wives of the male apostles. Right? These kinds of these kinds of changes occur, particularly surrounding Paul. So the Pauline epistles and the Acts of the Apostles, there's or and and quite a few women get turned into men in the scriptures themselves, and some later theologians think they're men. Right? Epiphanius of Salamis thought that Priscilla was a man. He thought, which nobody thinks Priscilla is a man, but he did. Because <laughs> his particular very corrupted Byzantine text type that he had had masculinized the character of Priscilla within the within the t- text. Likewise, Junia is still argued. Junia is one of my favorites. Junia is the woman that is called an apostle. She is she's like she is out and not just any apostle outstanding among the apostles. Junia is outstanding among the apostles and in Christ before me. Paul saying, not only are you outstanding among the apostles, you are in a better you you have been outstanding among the apostles since I was busy persecuting the apostles, right? You were you were already all that and a bag of chips. How do how do they do? And by the way, even even people who were not gender egalitarians acknowledge this. Like Chrysostomum, he thought women shouldn't lead. He thought women shouldn't speak. He was he was down with the revisionist view of Paul. He said Junia is outstanding among the apostles. So. Ancient Christians believe she was an apostle. Yeah. In the medieval period, she gets masculinized. <laughs> and then people, Protestants today still argue over whether she was a man or a woman. They still say, well, the ancient authorities were divided about whether Junia was, yeah, well, Junia we, was we, know, we know why. But I just, I'm, I'm slightly aware of time because we have been okay. sort of yeah, we're, we're running almost out. now. But I've got two questions. One, uh, first of all, you just mentioned Dura Europa, uh, which is the uh, which is a, an outpost, the edge of the of the eastern far eastern edge of the Roman Empire, almost in the Persian Empire. In fact, I think it changed hands a couple of times. I'm very aware of the fact that that there's this whole Eastern form of Christianity, the, the Nestorian tradition and the, the Thomasine tradition, which stretches all the way from there all the way out to China. Yeah. Uh, and, and and it was it was huge and, and quite often gets forgotten. Was this egalitarian strain preserved there? Or do we see a parallel? Because it couldn't be the, yeah. the same. So do we see a parallel male supremacist uh, change happening in, in, so, that, in that Eastern tradition? Yes, I do think that the, the creeping change was slower in the East in general. Okay. I think that, in other words, like those, those women in graveyards that seem to be, you know, women in, in authority within early Christian churches, I think that the later examples come from the more Eastern areas. And it's because the influence of the Western traditions spread East over time. So it was in the medieval period that the Western practices, as as you know, that it's in the medieval period that a lot of, a lot of um, personnel move uh, of the church hierarchies move back and forth between Rome and Byzantium before the great schism, right? Before 1054, there's plenty of diffusion between uh, Byzantine and Latin contexts. And it's in that period that aspects of normative Latin Christianity get normalized in e- in what we call Eastern Orthodoxy today, okay. right? And yep. so the, the, I do believe that, like, for example, our, you know, our Western displacement, that's entirely found in the, in the old Latin and Western Greek. It appears in Byzantine minuscules in the medieval period. Gotcha. So but, the Western so, so version, it moves, it, moves, it moves from the Latin, let's call it the Latin out. West, out to the to the Greek East, East but then to Greek. the Syriac, the Nestorian. I think the Syriac and the Nestorian were already out of communion, right? They were no yeah. longer part of that same world. So, and they and and they're the the far eastern ones are virtually extinct now. But some like Martin Palmer um, argues that, for example, that Turkish Nestorians brought the devotion to the Virgin Mary into Buddhist Asia and that it, and they were so into Mary with their things that, and there were no popular Buddhist goddesses at the time, early Mahayana Buddhism in China was extremely sexist. It was extremely patriarchalist. Like, like, you know, because the Buddha says you have to be reincarnated as a, as a man before you can attain enlightenment. So if you're a woman, you have to go at least one more 
time around the samsara merry-go-round before you are <laughs> before you're eligible for nirvana so so at that so at the time before the 7th century there were no goddesses in chinese buddhism but it was only after the nestorian turks brought mary their little white virgin marys that avalokiteshvara who is a um the bodhisattva of compassion and a male deity in indian buddhism he gets transformed into kuan yin who is the patron goddess of chinese of all east asian buddhism so she's sure. like the most powerful mother goddess and and so she gets so he turn who's an effeminate male becomes a a female precisely at the moment that the buddhists and nestorian christians are competing on the same east asian missionary field and this is this is turkic nestorian turkic, turkic so, so nestorian central in central, central asia. asian central asian christian around the 7th century or later I found that whole that whole side of the Christian history absolutely fascinating. But, but I, uh, I think you're yeah. onto something when you say that it's not a uniform process. The, of course. The, the, and and now that branch, that far eastern branch, has been extinct since the for 500 years or so. Gone, gone since the, the collapse of the Mongol Empire, right. pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And my final, like my final point, I suppose, comes back to my, my first point, which was that um, it's it's always interesting when. Uh, the 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 kind of the the popular conception of Christianity that atheists pick up seems to be more a reflection of of fundamentalist Christianity than of of anything anything that that you and I understand, um, and 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 this is something I, I often say you know that, that new atheism so called is um, is effectively a, a kind of a Protestant heresy. Um, <laughs> because so much of right. what they say when they're talking about Christianity, they're usually talking about fundamentalist Protestant American Christianity, and that's why I, I, I suppose as someone who's studied the history of Christianity, I often find what they're talking about to be very limited and, and often quite wrong. And I think uh, this has been a great conversation. And as I said, you're right at the beginning before we started recording. This is one where I didn't know anything about this until I read much until I read your paper. But uh, look, I really do thank you, Joe. I think it's been a really good conversation. Uh, and what I will do is probably get you to give me some of the, the references, particularly to that iconographical evidence, you know, the, yeah, the um, historical stuff. Yeah. So th I think there's a c good, concise open access piece. So, um, uh, Ali is like us, not, a committed sectarian, but she is interested in all audiences. So she's written okay. a pretty good summary, a pretty good accessible general audience summary for uh, actually an evangelical Christian publication, egalitarian publication called Christians for Biblical Equality. I, okay. I, I won't publish with them because I believe in canonical forgeries and they they can't. That's, you know, inerrantism. It doesn't allow for that. But um, uh, But she wrote a really good piece for them that is sub summarizes a lot of this sort of new and emerging uh, evidence for women's public leadership in early Christian archaeology. Um, that's a, that's, I, I'm sure she's got other publications that I could point you to as well, but that's one that you can just link to. Yeah. Okay. That'd be great because we can put the other references in the, in the material for this video uh, and, and for the, the podcast, but, um, but a link would be good that people can follow as well, particularly for anything to do with art history. Yeah, you've got to be able to look at the pictures and say, yeah, that looks like a bishop. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still amused. I'm still amused at, at Bishop uh, Bishop Theodora dash Theodoro. Or Theo Theodo. Theodo. Theodo, sorry. Theodo. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's going to oh, make me chuckle but, all morning. And, oh, and the other thing that came, I'll just say one more thing about her. It wasn't just that. There were lots of examples. Um, those those uh, palliums, the particular yeah. uh, like next neck things that the, that the bishops wear they you tell what rank they are based on the insignias on the ends so they had like a gold cross that's like pope pope mary guess what they did when they restored the tiles in the gold cross <laughs> took them off <laughs> they took them off right so that's <laughs> this is and and that's not the only there's like numerous examples of people restoring mosaics and demoting women through the restoration of mosaics it's how she she's concise like a quite a few of these things and or my one of my favorites is there's a baptistry in the vatican which has this very papal magnificent papal mary standing above the the apse and 
it's really un, it was really discomforting to renaissance folks so they put a giant demure maternal mary in front of her they put a painting of mary acting as a very domestic mother nursing jesus so now you can't see the one where she's like this queen of heaven figure like lording over humanity instead now she is you know a good mother taking care of her her precious baby boy. And the only way you can see the other one is to walk in the tiny little space behind Between, the yeah. big thing and then look up and you see the, the, the original one, which is a thousand years older than the, than the piece that, that if, is currently blocking it in, in the Vatican bat, baptistry. If, if that's not a metaphor, I don't know what is. Um, it's great. I think that's a great note on which to end. Joe, look, thank you very right. much for your time. Uh, it's uh, it's been a really good conversation, and for one that was reasonably impromptu, I think uh, I think we're going to get some great stuff out of it. So, uh, look, thank you for joining us on History for Atheists. Maybe we'll talk again soon, sometime in the future. It, it was my real pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Tim. Okay, see you, mate. Well, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Joe Wilson. It seems we have another example of a misconception about history shared by both conservative Christians and their anti-theistic opponents. It's funny how that keeps happening. For more debunking of bad history by some atheists and various others, see you again here soon. This has been another History for Atheists podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe today. You can also subscribe to the History for Atheists YouTube channel for video versions of this and other shows. Or to the original History for Atheists blog for an even more extensive collection of detailed articles on how to avoid errors about religious history. Have a great day.